0: Greetings and welcome to another different church podcast My name is Jarrett and I hope you are having an awesome day Alright, if you have been following along in chronological order This is the second podcast that is being released this week And it is from the service from May 1st Um, If you're just listening to this one and you didn't listen to the one before this It's totally cool, it'll work just fine on its own But I do recommend going backwards and listening to the last one Uh, they work very well together. I was out of town last week. And so I wasn't able to get the podcast done. So we're putting out the one from last week on Monday. And then this one is coming out on Tuesday and then we'll be all caught up and you should be able to listen to all of Hannah's goodness. So, Uh, Yeah, you may have already heard all of this. So I'm going to just kind of get straight to Hannah's message. Uh, Just check out our website. Um, Our website is diffchurch.com, but you can check out diff.church. That's kind of like a hub for all the things that you can do. You can donate there. You can join the mailing list. uh, And most importantly, right now, we have like three events uh, all around May 15th, May 20th, May 22nd. So go to diff.church, check out all that stuff. And uh, we would love to see you at some of those events. Uh, But let's jump straight to Hannah as she's talking about...
1: Fundamentalism. Now, if you just got real nervous... (laughs) Everyone take a breath, this is fine, okay? Last week I made a joke about how we were gonna put the fun back in fundamentalism. (laughs) And a couple people laughed hysterically and a couple people had a literal heart attack in their chairs. Um, So, this is what I need us all to do together before we begin, okay? I want you to take the biggest breath you can possibly take. Like, get more air. Keep breathing, more air, more. Hold it, hold it, hold it. And then go like this, (sighs) shake it out. Okay, Uh, I know this is a lot to ask, like, hopefully I have earned your trust for 20 minutes. I'm not going to take us anywhere we cannot get back from. Okay? <laughs> I promise. If you're feeling nervous, just, just trust me. Okay, we're going to get through this together. Um, let's start with a history lesson. Everyone came to church for class. Class is in session. The term fundamentalist actually came from the American church. Shocker. <laughs> in the early 20th century. Now... In a shocking turn of events from what we know about fundamentalism, this was an attempt to reverse some of the negative effects of Protestantism. We've talked about this before. Martin Luther nailed the 95 theses to the wall in protest of the Catholic Church, and then we have never stopped protesting each other ever since. And so, the, these people were like, okay, if we don't like come together somehow, there's going to be nothing left. Like literally every day, churches are dividing, they're building new churches, they're hating each other, they're arguing with each other, and so what we need to do is be more tolerant. Did you know that's how fundamentalism started? (laughs) Tolerance, that's not, okay, we'll get there. Um, So they were like, okay, what if we just agree on a few core things, and then everything else, we can just accept people's differences We cannot argue, we cannot split churches over nothing, over the color of pews, or whether the organ music is being replaced by guitar. Like, we don't need to do any of that. We just affirm a few couple things, okay? And they affirmed five fundamentals, which we'll get back to in a second. And as we all know from this lovely charitable impulse of trying to be tolerant (laughs) and create unity, was produced a movement that has been characterized entirely by fights. Which I find hilarious. We're like, do you know what would bring us together? If we just theologically punch each other in the face constantly. (laughs) Don't you want to come here so I can beat you up? Just in your brain though, not personally. Most of what the American church is currently fighting for doesn't seem to be the real enemy. And most of what we're fighting, no, that's wrong. Most of what we're fighting against doesn't seem to be the real enemy. And most of what we're fighting for doesn't seem to be the real prize. Doesn't seem like we should. Like, we seem to be fighting to get something back, like some kind of control, some kind of political power, some kind of privileged position as the favored religion of America, so on and so on. Um, Most of what we're fighting against are like specific things. We're like, you know what you shouldn't have? We're gonna launch a full-scale church fight against profanity, (laughs) against divorce, against alcohol. Well, okay, but that's not the problem. The problem is not a specific thing. The problem is the system. Are we fighting in the system? No. We are supporting the system. Not only are we supporting the system, we are defending it and protecting it and baptizing in the name of it and um, fighting for it. And the system is plagued by, we all know and love in evangelical churches, consumerism, greed, fear, violence, misplaced faith. It's not in God we trust, right? It's in capitalism, in our military-industrial complex we trust. Amen. Now, closely related to fundamentalism is Calvinism. I think we understand that in the broad sense, there's like all kinds of fundamentalism. Like any movement, any thought group of people can have like people who are like too hardcore. They're like very fundamental about it. And then we have like moderates in the middle who are just like, this feels fine to me. And then we have people over here that are like, none of this is fine, but we're not leaving, we're changing it. Every movement has that, Um, but there is one type of fundamentalism that has exerted a very strong influence on America, and that is Calvinism. Calvinism, have any of you grown up in a Calvinistic or Reformed church? Oh, I got one of these. (laughs) (laughs) So-so. Okay, so history lesson. Calvinism was founded by John Calvin, because nothing is more Christ-like than naming things after yourself. (laughs) That's a joke. He didn't. It was his followers. Um, He was a contemporary of Martin Luther. They live around the same time. Okay, But Calvinism really doesn't have anything to do with John Calvin, which I, again, find hilarious. It's really based on his successors several hundred years later, and it's associated with a misunderstanding of predestination. There's like a small academic part of my soul that wants to tell you and like reassure you. There's so many scholarly, nuanced, wonderful views of predestination and we just can't lump it all in one brush. But the majority of my heart is like, okay, this is the on the street version. This is what predestination is. God is a chess player and we are chess pieces. And God is in control of everything. We just get moved around. We have no control, no choice, nothing. If God wants to take your chess piece off the board and throw it into the oven, too bad for you. <laughs> you don't have a choice. And if God wants you to be cool on the board of heaven forever, again, you don't have a choice. So good for you. Happy you ended up that way. Just to be clear, this is not a different church's position. Okay? If anyone's listening to the podcast or watching online, it feels like anxiety or confused. I'm just explaining <laughs> the on-the-street version of Calvinism. Okay? And this view of God as, like, the ultimate, whatever this motion means, <laughs> The ultimate of this, just moving people around, okay, it folds Calvinism into, and fundamentalism, into this thing called determinism. Determinism says, freedom is an illusion. We're just puppets. We live in the matrix. Nothing is real, and we don't have choice about anything. Being good, a good person, means that you somehow don't resent that. (laughs) You don't resent being jerked around by a cosmic god who's controlling all the puppet strings. Um, But whether it's God who makes us puppets or our genes or socioeconomics, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, it doesn't matter to me. I am actually, I have zero time for determinism, and I'll tell you why. Because if it's true, I have no choice but to believe it. (laughs) So, and I don't think it's true, but if it is true, um, I'm already determined not to believe it. So why waste my time thinking about it? (laughs) Everyone traces this back to John Calvin. They're like, he started it. No, False. (laughs) Um, he was not creating it, he wasn't like, you know it would be great <laughs> if nothing was our choice? Let me just write that down. And it will stay in church history for centuries. It's great, no, he was reflecting a belief that had been growing since St. Augustine like hundreds of years earlier, okay? But then he just kind of put that out on paper and then after his death, a terrible accident happened where theistic determinism, that is, God controls everything, you have no choice. Kind of ran into mechanical determinism. Nature, laws of nature. Think Isaac Newton and gravity. Like you drop an apple, it's falling. There is no, you cannot get around it. It's falling, you have no choice. You have no control. The laws of nature are above you. So they ran into each other. And then together, they ran into rationalistic philosophy, which is like Descartes, I think therefore I am. Everything has to be logical and precise. And if it's not logical, then it's not real. Which, you know, everything good in life can be explained by logic, right? We all know this. Just try to apply logic to your relationships with your partner. It'll go so well. (laughs) So this is like perfect storm of like God controls everything. Nature controls everything. Logic controls everything. You have nothing. You have no free will, no choices, nothing. Created this whole new landscape where everything was viewed like a machine. And God was the one controlling the machine. I find it hard to imagine worshiping or even loving or caring at all about a machine operator God. Does that feel like, does that create any warm fuzzies in your heart? Just someone turning a crank of the universe? No. I mean, unless it does, in which case, I support your right to believe what you want. (laughs) Okay, but there is good in Calvinism as there is isn't everything, but I want us to consider this. Calvin became a pastor when he was 18. And he wrote the entire first edition of Institutes of Christian Religion by the time he was 25. He just a baby. I say it from my lofty heights of 33. <laughs> he was just a baby. I mean, people did live less, less years, less longer. They died sooner, <laughs> is that what I'm trying to say? <laughs> Forget I said that. <laughs> he was like, uh, he had this drive, okay? And he, saw, he was like, okay, Protestants have rejected the entire Catholic Church. Before that, there were just Catholics. Nothing wrong with that, but like, he was like, we rejected all of that. No more. What do we do now? We, how do you replace a huge, often corrupt, medieval theological establishment like the Catholic Church? You you can't just replace it with another huge, corrupt theological establishment, can you? That defeats the purpose. So he was like, do you know what we need? A lean, pure, intellectual system that people can check boxes. I believe this, and this, and this, and this is why, and I am therefore good. And he wanted to re-doctrinate the Catholics. So all the Catholics that left the Catholic Church, they were like, what do we do now? And he was like, here's what you do. You believe these things. And they were like, okay. I could do that, and then I teach them to my kids. But what would he do today? Because we have um, no shortage of giant corrupt establishments in the church. And we also have no shortage of lean, mean, theological, logical systems. Emphasis on the mean. Would he identify a completely different need and try to meet it? Something that strikes me as very interesting for reformed Christians, that's another way to say Calvinistic Christians, is one of their slogans is from the Reformation, and it is simper reformanda, which means always reforming. So when we say reformed, that's a misnomer. It should be reforming, right? Um, Except (laughs) that most reformed Christians, like most fundamentalists in America today, are not reforming at all. (laughs) They are just defending and promoting ideas that came right after medieval times as timeless truths for all times and in all places. And spoiler alert, it's not working. (laughs) It's not working. Now, I do think we need to take a page from the spirit of the Calvinists and always be reforming. We should always be paging. Um, not because we got it wrong and we're like gonna somehow magically be the ones to get it right. There's like this diagram that I saw a long time ago and it's like like a March Madness bracket, except it's going the other way. It's getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And then there's like a little stick figure guy and he's like circles one and he's like, this is where we came along and got it right. Jesus is so lucky to have us. We're not trying to do that. Getting it right is actually not the point. The point is being good and doing good as followers of Jesus in our unique time, in our unique place in history, fitting in with the ongoing story of God's saving love. If Jesus fulfilled his mission, then the world is forever changed. However, Jesus, by succeeding in his mission, created a problem. The disciples were like, okay, what do we do? And Jesus was like, you know what you should do? Something I couldn't, on account of I got murdered, Um, go into all the world and preach the gospel. And then they set out to do this and are immediately confronted by another problem. Should we let the Gentiles and the non-Jews in? And if they do, then another problem arises, which preoccupies Paul in almost the entire New Testament. How are we going to get these two groups of deeply separated and deeply mistrustful people to exist in one space? as one community, this definitely has no modern parallels for us, right? We definitely all trust each other and we don't have any issues interpersonally with cultural differences and, no, this doesn't speak to us. What's crazy is, Paul and his peers actually succeed at this crazy task to such a degree that it spreads like wildfire among the Gentiles, which creates another problem. Because then, what's the Roman Empire gonna do? Is Christianity just gonna become a subset? of Greek philosophy? Is the Roman Empire gonna be threatened by this and try to stomp it out? Yes. (laughs) But spoiler alert, okay, the Romans did, they tried to wipe it out and then they couldn't and then they're like, oh, you know what would be better is if we just make it the official religion of the state, which you guessed it, creates more problems. (laughs) So uh, just the whole idea of church history is just problem after problem after problem after problem after problem. And do you get where I'm going with this? There are continual challenges that require new forms, new methods, new structures, new meanings, new ways of being in faith, new ways of being together. And if we're going to do the mission that Jesus assigned us to do, then we have to be in that space. And certainly we've gotten it terribly wrong on many occasions. But also, we've gotten it wonderfully right sometimes, because if we hadn't, the whole thing would have just imploded back to the part that makes everyone the most nervous, the five fundamentals. Here they are. (laughs) Okay, if you're feeling nervous, you can do another giant hold your breath and then shake it out, okay? I am not going to beat you with these, okay? They are, in fact, just words, and you are human beings. You are more important than them. The fundamentals of fundamentalism were chosen, shockingly, um, on battle lines with theological liberalism in the 19th and 20th centuries, not because they were rooted in the church creeds, which have like governed and guided Christian faith for more than 2,000 years. The 19th century was, if you're counting, like 200 years ago. Of these five, only two come from the creeds, and that would be the virgin birth of Jesus, meaning Jesus was born of Mary, a virgin somehow supernaturally, and Jesus physically rose from the dead. He wasn't some kind of spirit that just appeared to be human. The other three have nothing to do with the creeds whatsoever. They're not in there. Such as the inerrancy and verbal inspiration of the Bible. You all know how I feel about this one already. We talked about it at length last week. Um, I highly recommend you listen to the podcast. We did have an audio issue, but Jared is amazing and fixed it. So there should be a new po- That podcast episode will be up in like a day. You should go listen to it, because the word inerrancy isn't even in the Bible to begin with. And personally, feel you know that whole like vibe in Christian evangelicalism right now. That's like, if like something's wrong, we don't know what's wrong with these millennials and Generation Z people. Like, people are just leaving the church, and we don't know why. It's because our music isn't cool enough. It's because we don't have enough programs for the children. It's, because, it's definitely not because we don't love or accept anyone. Um, actually, what I find is inerrancy of scripture is always brought up. Even if a person who has left the evangelical church doesn't know what it's called, it always comes up as the reason for everything going terribly wrong. So, out. We don't like that one. I also don't think It's biblical. The second one is penal substitutionary atonement. Truly the worst of the atonement theories. Um, an atonement theory, if you don't know, is how we try to explain exactly what it is Jesus accomplished by dying on the cross and being resurrected. There are quite a few of them. There's not just one atonement theory, there are multiple atonement theories. But at some point, we will do a Sunday on them. Of all the atonement theories, this one is the least helpful it starts off with the premise that we are all bad. In fact, we're so bad that Jesus had to be murdered to take the punishment off of us because we're so bad. And I would go so far, like I know, usually I frame things in terms of helpful and unhelpful instead of being mean, but like, I would go so far as to say this is not only unhelpful, but downright harmful and terrible. That is not at all why Jesus was murdered. It has very little to do with a good God and God's good creation, which the Bible teaches about over and over and over and over again. So this one is out also. if we Even if we're gonna follow the lean mean doctrinal system, it doesn't make sense. The last bullet point is the imminent return of Jesus, which technically Jesus coming back is a part of the creeds, but the word imminent is not in there. And the word imminent creates a whole different vibe because imminent means about to happen or overhanging. So a fundamental of fundamentalism is the return of Jesus is hanging over your head at all times, at any moment. And of course, it goes hand in hand with penal substitutionary atonement because what is Jesus gonna come and do? Judge the world, into the world, punish people. Now, I know there's a lot of junk and stuff and trauma around those five fundamentals. Keep it together. Okay, we're going to bring it back around. This is the process. We've gotten here where we need to get here. We're bringing it back together. Take another breath. If you're feeling like some kind of way, you can actually acknowledge that. I think it's okay to have feelings when you're talking about tricky subjects. And you are in a safe space here. All of you know, I hope, if you've been around here any length of time, that those last three are not in line with who we know God to be or with who we want to be as followers of Jesus. And I don't think it's helpful to ignore this stuff. I don't think it's helpful to pretend that this doesn't happen or that people still believe this. Um, and just We're just like, no, it did damage to us, so we're just not going to discuss it ever. We're only going to talk about the love of God. <laughs> Talking about the love of God is deeply helpful, Um But it is more liberating to me to understand the context of where these things came from that have done so much damage because it can gently remind us, right? One, that this is a recent development in the church. The creeds have been with us for 2,000 years. This has been with us for less than 200. And also, this was a reaction to stuff that was happening in a specific time and place in history. Just like last week, we discussed how the word inerrancy came to be associated with the Bible as a reaction against the Enlightenment. So these fundamentals came about because they were a reaction to the philosophy of modern liberalism. Of course, you know, the church was like, the Goliath. We have to slay the Goliath of modern liberalism, and that Goliath um, has shrunk down to the size of, like, a Polly Pocket. We're still trying to slay it. <laughs> but, like, it's, like, this big now, because guess what? Modern liberalism isn't really a thing anymore, because now we've moved on to postmodernism, which those fundamentals don't address at all. <laughs> we, as a society, we have moved to a completely different philosophy, and still these things are saying nothing helpful. Truth is best understood as a conversation, Attention that we're all kind of journeying towards and through at the same time. There's never going to be a place where you're like, do you know what? I got it. And then, you know, the next day, you're going to be like, oh, no. Turns out I don't got it. <laughs> I say this sometimes. I'm like, you know, I should have gone into the ministry when I graduated from college. And I was like 22 and still thought I knew everything. Now... <sighs> Every morning I'm like, oh no. The the more I know, the more I know I know nothing. The more there, I realize there is so much more to know, and that even my understandings are they may be they might be mind blowing and they're so limited. So what? Most of us came from fundamentalist type faith communities. That's why we're here, in fact. <laughs> we know that it's not how we want to exist in the world. And we are firmly convinced. I am firmly convinced, I'll only speak for myself, that God is like outraged by the harm that some of these communities have caused. And, and this is a hard pill to swallow sometimes, we are also firmly convinced that God deeply cares for and loves everyone, even fundamentalists, (laughs) and wants to move them forward towards healing just as God has moved us forwards towards healing. Because if we can't accept that, if we're like, God has moved us forward towards healing, and that's it. Guess what we just created? Another fundamentalism. <laughs> and soon there will be a church being like, it will be like different church part do." and they'll be like, okay, <laughs> those fundamentalists over there, <laughs> yeah. I think the answer is not for us to write off the idea of fundamentals or fundamentalists entirely. It's actually to embark on a new project determining what is truly fundamental. If it's not that, then what is it? There is a sense, I think, in which we who are searching for this more open, more generous, more inclusive type of faith, we need a little bit. We need like a measured dose of the fundamental spirit. The writer of Ecclesiastes said, there's a time for everything. There's a time to be laid back. There's a time to be outraged. There's a time to be tolerant. And there's a time to stand up and say, we're not going to take that anymore. The challenge is to find something that is truly worth fighting for. For me, the fundamentals that we should be focused on boil down to two things. Given by Jesus. Love God. Love people. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And unfortunately, I don't think that's going to satisfy many fundamentalists. <laughs> They're going to be like, um, but which God are we supposed to love? Is it the God of the Methodists or the Baptists, or the Catholics or the Muslims or the Jews? And I'll be like, well, whichever God Jesus was referring to and that will not satisfy them in the slightest. And then they'll get philosophical, and they'll want to know what exactly do you mean by love and your neighbor, and how do we know who is our neighbor, and what if our neighbor is terrible, and what if my neighbor is you and I don't agree with you at all? At which point, I will mumble something incoherent and just run away from the conversation. Not because the question's unimportant, but because the the line of approach, like arguing and lines of reasoning, all things I love dearly, mind you. I love a good debate. I don't think it's going to bring us the answers we're looking for. You can't logic your way into love. If you find someone and you think like, they're a great person and you're like attracted to them or you're not attracted to them. And you're like, but they're great on paper. They have all the things I'm looking for. I just don't get it. I don't like it. There's something missing. I can't be like, well, but just focus on those things and it'll fix everything. Just focus on the fact that they have a good job and, you know, like, um, they're respectful of you and totally ignore that there's no spark whatsoever. Jesus taught us that the way to know God is by going on an adventure. It's not by determining our philosophical boundaries. The way to know God is by going on the adventure of faith and hope and love, even if you don't know where you're going, even if you don't know what the path ends up as. You don't know what the destination is. The way to know God is by following Jesus on that adventure. You don't learn what God is like in a library or a church seat, and then you're like, now I shall begin to love God. We begin to love God and love others in real life. And then sometimes that brings us to do more research and more study. Sometimes it brings us into church. But anyone who doesn't go on the adventure of love doesn't know God at all. No matter what you say you believe, because God is love. The most fundamental thing about God is love. The most fundamental thing about faith is love. And if we ever lose that, we might as well just shut this whole thing down. Go home. God loves us so dearly, so deeply. Not in a, I have to fix you way, but in a, I created you in your wonderful way. And the things you struggle with don't mean that you're bad, it just means that you're human. And I want you to move forward on the path of healing. God loves us so deeply, even fundamentalists, even us.